this is going to seem a little random, but do you know why pigeons bob their heads? I know it seems odd, but if you've ever taken a look at a pigeon while they walk, they have this sort of back and forth motion with each step. And the reason is it's so that they can know where they're going. A pigeon can't focus its eyes while it's moving. And so they have to stop their heads during each step to refocus their vision and take another step. Their head has to come to a complete stop for their eyes to focus. But once they focus, they can take the next step. And so we've started this series called The Movement is On. And what we're trying to answer is what we mean when we talk about salvation. And so salvation was always supposed to be more than an event. It was supposed to be something that was unfolding. It was supposed to feel like a movement. It was supposed to feel growing and organic and resensitizing and awareness. And when I was thinking about creating a church from scratch, and you know, you could argue there were so many churches already, why start another one? What I was thinking about wasn't having this large institution or becoming Austin's next mega church. Actually, what I was dreaming about was having a movement that had a lower overhead model, but it was a movement that we could, with each step, with each circumstance, be able to pivot, not like a battleship that takes forever to turn, but more like a speedboat. And I envisioned the people of the church would be more like a Minutemen army, where it was a call to arms and we could respond. Um, and one of those things that I just want to interrupt this before I get into the message is um, we are in a ridiculously cold time in Austin. I've been here for 15 years. I've never seen it this cold. Uh, and so uh, there's an opportunity that we have to just pivot and respond to some of the needs going on around us. And Chip, uh, if you want to just say a little bit about what's going on with, with you and how you are trying to respond to some of the needs around us, we'd love to just hear a little bit. I know we sent out uh, an app notification and an inter uh, Instagram post. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah, so it started yesterday going to drop uh, something off at a co-worker's house and there's a ton of homeless people on Lake Creek and Lake Line Boulevard under the bridge pull up you know and first thing out of my friend Pip's mouth is man me and Cy his daughter we're gonna make some sandwiches you know a hundred sandwiches tomorrow and go drop them off and I said I was thinking the same thing like what, what could we do and so quickly um, we did some shopping and so we got 10 kits, Let's see if I can turn my camera around here. 10 kits, uh, so basically we have a camp stove, uh, 16 things of butane, uh, coffee pot, cook set, bowls, dishes, and about 100 servings of ramen. And so it's 100 bucks um, each. So the, the, the challenge is we've already sold out, so we only, we only had enough to, to get 10, but if you want to brave the, uh, um, you know, the wintry weather, you're welcome to come pick up a kit and go deliver it with your family. So the basic premise is you take the stove, show them how to use the stove, start butane, you know, give them some water and, uh, you know, help them unpack and that's it. 
So I have, uh, it is, I know with parts like 2222 are closed now and other places, but uh, it's an easy way uh, to, to kind of get involved. So all you have to do is uh, buy some water, you know, and maybe an insulated bag so that water doesn't freeze. But yeah, that's what we're doing. Wow. Chip, thanks so much. I know um, we're, we're also involved with the Good Neighbor Fund is helping some of this. I Absolutely. The Good Neighbor Fund funded, you know, several of those already. So, and we had some great outreach from some church members too. And then some people have already Venmoed you to participate, but if you and your family are living near an overpass, chances are under that overpass are some homeless people. And you can be anti-tent in the city, but there's still something about their human condition that we should seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which we live. So Chip, thanks for thanks for just initiating and running point and being sensitive to some of the needs around us. That's awesome. Well, again, we want to see salvation as something that's unfolding and active. And uh, rather than simply limiting uh, our salvation to just be in an event or sort of a box that gets checked, uh, we want to explore salvation as a movement, like a relationship that's full of growth and understanding, as active and dynamic and, and, and continually being resensitized. One of the things that I have had the pleasure of uh, and sort of the amusement of is for over 20 years, I have sat with many young couples and I always fill out, have them fill out like this premarital questionnaire form. And it's kind of family of origin stuff. It's communication patterns. It's, it's a lot of personal information, but I always ask them, what's your definition of intimacy? And uh, how do you handle conflict? And it's always rather um, <clears throat> Uh, idealistic to hear these young couples in love. Uh, and um, what's funny is, is that when I do the actual wedding and we go through the actual vows, I always have this thought to myself that this young couple, while I care for them, while I want to invest in them, while I want to be there for them, really has no idea what they're saying yes to. And that included me too. <laughs> so, Everyone who's been married for like three weeks or more understands this. We understand the idea of for better, for worse, uh, richer or poorer, uh, sickness and in health. Um, but here's the thing. We are not saying yes to a better life when we say I do. We're saying yes to a person. And where she goes, I go. And where how he succeeds, I succeed. Where she struggles, so do I. And so it is with Christ. When we at some point, at some event, at some moment of belief say, I do to the Lord Jesus Christ, what we're saying is, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Christ doesn't necessarily mean a better healthier, prosperous, happier life. Amen? It does mean that we are not going to go through it alone. And when you move from me to we, you understand you're no longer the center of your own life. And my life is no longer my own. 
And that marriage analogy maybe is the best analogy we have at understanding what it means to experience this sort of divine union with Christ. And the way I want to do this today in the next few minutes is pull back some of the layers. Our salvation, if our salvation in Christ is both an event and a process. And along the way, there are sort of these key mile markers that many people can point to where we got to know Christ better. Um, and, and it just sort of defined in the, in, in the relationship that we have with God. Today, what I want to do is I want to peel back a few layers of a really critical, pivotal event in the life of Christ of the transfiguration. Because without peeling back the layers of culture and history and prophetic understanding, a lot of this sort of is missed on us. But these disciples, these immediate closest followers, had a transformational experience in working out their salvation. And so at the transformation, uh, and you might want to turn there, it's in Mark chapter 9. We'll get there in a second. But to understand uh, the transformation, uh, or excuse me, the transfiguration, it helps to know what preceded it. So the disciples' faith was radically interrupted with this moment. But just prior to it, he had taken them on a hike. It was a day hike with him and the disciples where they got to this place. It was a cliff called Overlooking a City, a rather debaucherous city called Caesarea Philippi. Obviously, it's not a Jewish enclave because it's named after a Roman Caesar. And so Caesarea Philippi was this place that had this huge plaza, and it would be known for sort of the worship of other gods, and it would be fertility worships, aka group sex. It would have animals involved in the worship in inappropriate ways. But at the base of this cliff, there was a big cleft in the cliff that drove deep into the earth like a deep diving cave, and it was referred to as the gates of Hades. And there was this belief that the spirits would enter like a portal in and out of earth. Now, Jesus is standing on top of this cliff overlooking this city, and he starts to talk with the disciples. Now, imagine he's having a debrief with you and I about what it is we actually believe. And he says, who do people say that I am? And then he asks, Peter, who do you say that I am? And people had said, well, some say this, some say Elijah, some say, you know, then Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, and on this rock, Peter, you're right, I'm going to build my church. Peter's name also happens to mean in the Greek, rock, Petros. So you have this really significant moment overlooking this really dark and wicked city on top of the cleft. And he says, where the gates of hell will not prevail. This is what Jesus wants to build his church. So when we look around at our world and it feels like hell on earth, it feels increasingly wicked. It feels increasingly divisive. It can feel increasingly um Injust, what we recognize is this is the fertile soil in which Christ, from the beginning, had intended to build his church. So if you're a disciple now, you just receive some really hard 
teaching. And then he starts to talk about, it gets worse. And then I've got to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter's like, oh no, don't Lord, you've got to avoid that. And he's like, get behind me, Satan. You're going to be a stumbling block to me if you keep up that mantra of simply avoiding pain and avoiding discomfort and being inconvenienced and being let down. Now that you know that, he takes another hike and they get to this place. He chooses three, not all 12, but he's like, Peter, James, John, come with me. And he goes up to the mountain of transfiguration. This is where we pick up in Mark chapter nine, verses two through nine. It says, uh, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up high on the mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes become, became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus kind of a random cameo appearance, but if we understand history, if we understand prophecy, we'll get there in a moment, it'll make a little bit more sense. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. Uh, he didn't know what to say because they were frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. And that might be a way to telling Peter the zealot to stop talking, just sit there and absorb this moment. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Okay, now for those who have been saved, you just had an interruption. And what I'd like to suggest to you today as we work out our own salvation is that salvation is once and continually being a reorienting experience. I don't know if your salvation, your faith in Christ has ever forced you to reorient your view of something, maybe your view of justice, maybe your view of needs, maybe your view of a certain kind of people or person, maybe your view of your resources or interrupt you or reorient your view of your marriage or your family or the way you parent. Salvation has a way of integrating into all of life, and it should reorient us all along the way. Now, this is what I would say. We get a new perspective, a kind of new lens, if you will. And culture has taught us that we can have it all, but we only grow when we let go. Let me say that again. We only grow when we let go. Maybe we could even say it this way. The cost of growth is this. Every time you gain something, you also lose something. See, in our Western consumerism, we are all about us some 
accumulation. But that's not the way of Christ. That is not the kingdom of God. True salvation comes doesn't come when we really work at all, when we try and add God to our ambition, uh, to our problems, add God to our wealth, add God to our education and ask him to somehow bless it and make it bigger or make it better. See, transformation always involves an interruption. And one person who I was seeking counsel from was speaking into my life and he said, David, we have to face a disorientation in order that we reorient our lives around something new. The gospel was intended to disorient us so that we can reorient our new identity, our identity in Christ. It's like becoming a parent, right? For those of you who have ever given birth, you understand that having a child doesn't just change your life, it changes your lifestyle, does it not? I mean, you got a new reality over what is bedtime. No longer are you trying to stay up till midnight. You're just like falling asleep at eight. It's a lifestyle game changer. And the strategy behind our own church rhythms is so that we can have actual ways to reorient our faith as active disciples of Christ. So as we think about this, the cost of growth is every time we gain something, we also lose something. And my hope is that you've gained salvation. But as you gain salvation, I hope that you're learning to lose things along the way. And we want to talk about. So as we look at these verses, I want to consider, I want you to consider what the disciples were gaining, but also losing. So the first thing we see is in verse four, and it talks about them and says, and there appeared before them, Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, Moses was the judge, the original judge of all the people of God. He stood as an intermediary. There was no king of Israel. There was this deliverer, this savior that led him out of 400 years of bondage and slavery from Egypt. And he appears as a representative of the old covenant, the old covenant where you needed a blood sacrifice, uh, an animal sacrifice, and it was a promise of salvation or deliverance. Every time you gain something, you also lose something. So the idea is we gain salvation, but we're being delivered from something else. They even complained about it once they got outside of Egypt. Oh, at least we had three meals a day. And when they didn't know where their food and water would come from. Now, this idea of salvation was also going to be fulfilled in the death of Christ, which he references. Elijah was a prophet. And he appears as the, as the appointed restorer of all things, which we see in John the Baptist taking this new role prior to Jesus. So right here, these three disciples are connecting everything they had learned historically, prophetically, with the here and now. In other words, there wasn't going to be a reincarnation of Moses. There was going to be Jesus, the new savior of Israel. There wasn't going to be a reincarnation or a reappearance of, of Elijah, even though Elijah actually never died a physical death. See, the purpose of this transfiguration is to clarify the kind of salvation Jesus would bring. And history says that God liberates his people from oppressive regimes. 
So it's only a matter of time before he does it again. And that's what the hope was for these young disciples. And this is all very exciting and yet all very overwhelming for these guys. Now, Peter says, wouldn't it be good, this is verse five, he says, wouldn't it be good if we put up shelters? And this would have been a reference to something called the Feast of Tabernacles kind of a series of lean-tos as an acknowledgement of the patriarchs and, and God's presence. Without going into all of that, Peter's having this moment. He knows something sacred is happening. He's mildly frightened, but he knows he's being privileged to this exposure. He wants to build shelters almost as if to say, this is a really good thing. Let's not leave this moment. Let, let's try and put a pin in this moment and make it last. Let's stay right here, forgetting how badly others might need salvation, healing, and hope. And I think we all have a tendency to want to sit in fear or comfort without moving beyond it for the sake of others. Let's stay right here. And then this event climaxes in verse 7, and he says, The cloud appeared, enveloped them, and a voice came down from the cloud, This is my son, in whom I love. Listen to him. Now, the funny thing is, the odd thing, the amusing thing, is that the voice gives a direct order to Peter, James, and John to listen. And what's interesting is that also ended the conversation listen to him. And then there wasn't actually anything that came after it. Apparently, it wasn't said in anticipation of what was about to come, but in response to what had already been said through the law, the prophets, and the teaching of Christ. On this rock, I will build my church. Oh, so this salvation was more than an event. It was unfolding, and they were beginning to understand Christ in increasing ways. This is our invitation to know Christ with a kind of intimacy. And this intimacy always involves salvation for the sake of others. It's not enough for us to say, I'm saved I'm good. I'm avoiding hell. I've got my spiritual rab lucky rabbit's foot to rub when I get in trouble. See, the salvation that Jesus was inviting people to was to reorient their lives in Christ, who for love's sake gave himself, all of himself, for the sake of others. And the transfiguration was a revelation of the glory of God, a glory that is hidden now, but will be revealed fully when he returns. See, what God was saying is that salvation doesn't look the same. It doesn't mean you personally, individually, get saved from something bad. Though it does involve personal connection with Christ, what it points us to, what it reorients us to, is the care and the concern for others, our willingness to cross social divides, our concern for the sake of others. And if you're a Jewish person, you've always understood God as this God of our people. God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And they have this sort of monopoly on God. And it's like God is saying, 
and you'd like to just keep this special relationship for yourself. I know you've always claimed God, but really all along you were my people and my blessings aren't your privilege. My grace isn't your possession. My salvation is a movement. It's active and it's unfolding and it's yours to share. See, salvation always reorients us, if not refocuses us, our lives with each day, with each challenge, with each blessing, with each circumstance. And as we grow in faith and awareness of God's presence, we understand and learn to trust God and lose the need to somehow control, to hold on to resentment, to not trust. Um, and this is what I think is worth praying about today. So I'm just gonna invite you now um, <clears throat> to pray with me um, through the eyes of these disciples who were overwhelmed by this little hike up a mountain. I mean, they did a hike up to the Caesarea Philippi cliff and were blown away. But now they're up here having this experience with the prophets. See, every time we gain something, and I hope that you have gained salvation in Christ, not just know God generically, but know Christ personally. But every time we gain something, we also lose something. And this is the reorientation that salvation continually invites us into. So let's just pray for a second. I just want to kind of bow our heads and maybe close our eyes and just pause. But I just want to ask you, what have you gained in Christ? Since the moment you first knew Christ, since the moment you started attending church, since the moment you've been trying to reorient your life in Christ, since the moment you joined Mission Hills, what have you gained in Christ? Maybe you just acknowledge, maybe it's a word, maybe it's several things, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a new understanding. What have you gained in Christ. And then secondly, what is it that you might need to lose in order to trust him more? Because if salvation is to grow, there usually needs to be a letting go, a loss. We don't want to just simply add more of you, Lord, to our already sheltered lives. But we want to share in your heart and even in your burden. We want to have eyes to see, ears to hear. We want to align our lives with you, not once and for all, but in ever and increasing ways. So I pray for myself and for my friends, that we would have a growing awareness of your presence and be able to yield to the promptings, to the leadings of your spirit. So I pray that you would interrupt us in our, in our comfort, um, in our survival, uh, in, <clears throat> in our consumerism, and invite us to a, a grand adventure 
so that we might know you more and be a part of the restoration of all things. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.